Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Road and Fellow podcast. I'm your host, Parker Owens. I'm joined today by two fabulous Road and Fellows, if they wouldn't mind introducing themselves. Hi, everybody. My name is Jayla, and I'm a senior at Prairie View A&M University. Hello, everyone. My name is Marissa Stubbs. I am a senior broadcast journalism student at Florida A&M University. We are also joined by our fabulous guest, Ms. Kelly Carter, host of Another act on The Undefeated. How are you doing, Ms. Carter? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing today? Good. Doing good, doing good. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining. So as we all know, it's Women's History Month, and we wanted to take the time to acknowledge and appreciate women in the sports and entertainment field who are great at what they do, who are shattering glass ceilings, and truly showing other women that look up to them that anything is possible. So in sports, there's the entire WNBA. You know, we've seen what they've done in the last year. Then there's the first Black female NFL official in Maya Shaka, a current Black female player turned NBA ref in Simone Jelps. And entertainment, we have actresses and producers and directors like the multi-talented Regina King. You know, Beyonce just broke the Grammys record for the most awards any singer has ever received. And, you know, Black women are just flourishing in our fields, which leads us to you, Miss Kelly Carter. You're another well-known face in entertainment. Of course, you have another act, which is amazing. And then you're on red carpets for the Oscars and the ESPYs. You're on Good Morning America. And you've literally won an Emmy. So it's like you, and then you've also worked with some great publications. So it's like you've, you've done it all. So what has your journey been like to get to the place you're at now? Ah, well, thank you for all of that. That's really kind of you to say. And, you know, I mean, my journey started, like, I think probably a lot of you all's journeys too, is that I, I wanted to be a writer, you know, I, I knew what I wanted to do when I was young. And I think that in, um, and I didn't know what kind of writer I wanted to be, but I just knew that I, I did well at telling stories. And that's probably even a better way to say it, storyteller, because so much of what I do now isn't writing in the traditional sense but I knew that I wanted to tell stories. And a teacher told me in fifth grade, believe it or not, you can be a journalist and this is a path that you can do. And that's truly like the only vocation really for storyteller. There isn't a vocation for being a fiction writer or anything like that. And so I started down that path of journalism in in fifth grade and with very few exceptions, stayed very consistent with that being, you know, the goal for me. And I, I decided when I think I was a junior in college that entertainment was what I wanted to do specifically. That was the types of, those are the types of stories I wanted to tell. And it was really because I knew I didn't want to be a sports reporter, which is funny that I now work for ESPN, but I, I thought I wanted to do that at first. But then I realized very quickly that I would just rather be a spectator at sports and not have to analyze it but but entertainment came about because I love the theater and at one point one of those moments where I strayed away from thinking that I wanted to be a journalist I thought I wanted to study theater in college I didn't know what I would do with that degree because I wasn't necessarily interested in being an actor but I just loved being around the theater and loved the process of everything that went into putting on a show and the mechanics of it like I did a lot of you know school plays and things like that in high school. And so, you know, I decided that entertainment would be the thing that I would develop 
an expertise in. And I didn't know that that would necessarily lead me to kind of the things that I'm doing right now, but I'm glad that it did. And I feel like it's just one of those things where everything that I, that I was doing that felt very extracurricular ended up playing a very strong role into the vocation, you know, itself. Yes. I watch a lot of movies and TVs before I became a critic and before I became someone who was breaking down the process of, of this particular industry. And I listened to a lot of music. I started off covering music originally, but there was all this, always this extra layer, I think, that came along with it. So I wasn't just watching it for fun. I was watching it for something else. Like I took this screenwriting class one time. And after I took that, that just changed everything. And the only reason that I took that class was I wanted to learn how to make a movie, not because I wanted to make one myself, but because I wanted to know what went into it so that when I was watching a film and so that quite frankly, when I was interviewing actors and directors and producers, I kind of knew what I was talking about. And once I learned the structure of film, it changed how I watched film moving forward and just changed, you know, even how I eventually would approach interviewing people and talking about films and telling the story of films and so on and so forth. So with your show, Another Act, you're interviewing singers and actors and actresses and you're telling their stories. So what's it like having your own show and what's your favorite part of that? Yeah, you know, I mean, again, so much has happened in the last 12 months. This wasn't necessarily what I was working towards doing or having. I'm glad that I that I am doing it because I really do love it. And I think the thing that I love the most about it is that 95% of the time, the people that I'm interviewing and that you see me interviewing are people that I've been talking to for a really long time. It's very rare that I talk to someone that I haven't talked to before. So in a lot of ways, I think people are starting to get an idea of maybe the type of rapport that I have with certain talent. Because if you know me as a writer, you don't see, you know, kind of the behind the scenes mechanics, I guess, of, of what it's like and what facial expressions are like and how someone talks to you, even though we are still doing this, you know, via Zoom because of the global health pandemic. But I, I love kind of showcasing that. And I love really learning how to do something different. You know, for so long, I think, you know, you fall into a routine and a rhythm when you are a writer and when you're telling someone's story in the written form. But this requires a completely different skill set altogether it requires asking questions a completely different way than I normally would ask questions. And I loved kind of learning and still learning as I go along and, and picking that up. Do you have a most memorable or favorite episode? <laughs> they all are memorable and they all are my favorites, but um, I feel like I've had with probably very few I've had maybe like two or three people on the show who I know socially, like we actually have a friendship outside of the industry. Um, and that's something that, you know, I'm very kind of adamant about talking about and being forthcoming about. I think a lot of times when you work in Hollywood or you work adjacent to Hollywood, sometimes some reporters can get very much caught up in thinking that 
some of these people are your friends. They're really not your friends. They are people that you work in tandem with. You may have a familiarity with them and you have a relationship with them to be sure. But if you, you know, if your car breaks down on the 405 uh, freeway out here in LA, you're not going to call, you know, Vin Diesel to come and, you know, help you replace that tire. You're going to call your insurance company. You're not going to call him to even keep you company while you wait for AAA or, or whomever, State Farm, to come out and assist you with that. Like, that, that's somebody that you have a work relationship with. That's not a friend of yours. That said, I had one of my very good friends on the show who also just happens to be, you know, a very famous actress, author, and activist. And it's Gabrielle Union. Like, I love her. Like I said, we're really good friends. And I wasn't sure <laughs> how it was going to be because our relationship obviously started many years ago as reporter and, and subject. And then it just evolved at some point. And once it evolved, I stopped interviewing her because I, I believe in respecting the boundaries that we should have as journalists. But the show is its own thing. And I obviously, you know, was very forthcoming about, about the fact that she is my friend. And, and that was really fun talking to her because even, even from her vantage point, I'm sure she's like, all right, you know, like, are we, are we going to discuss, you know, what we text about, or are we gonna, you know, is this going to be, you know, a, a different, you know, kind of, kind of situation. We had a lot of fun with that interview. And that was memorable for me because not only is she a good friend of mine, but I mean, she's on what I would consider to be my personal board of directors. You know, she's somebody that gives the best advice and is truly like a big sister to me and, and, and loved, you know, having her on the show and, and talking to her. That was great. Kelly, what advice would you offer journalists who want to break into the entertainment field like you did or are really trying to find their footing in the field? Learn the business. You know, I think it's cool if you know the players. That's great that you know who actors are or musicians are, but you have to also learn the process of the craft too, because I think that's ultimately what will set you apart from other people that they'll be talking to. So learning that I think is very helpful, but also breaking outside of your own comfort zones. I think oftentimes I meet a lot of student journalists who want to be music writers, for example, because they love Big Sean or they love hip hop music or they love Beyonce. But in order to really be an effective music writer, you have to be open to understand, appreciate, get the artistry of all different types of music, all different types of genres. You know, when I covered music, I primarily focused on music that comes out of Blackness, you know, from gospel, hip hop, R&B, rock music, because ultimately everything comes from Black music, I guess, now that I'm saying that. But but I had this awareness of, of everything, you know, because I'm that type of music listener anyway. I once went to a music store when that was a thing <laughs> that people used to do. And I bought like an Al Green CD, probably like NWA CD, and it might have been like Bon Jovi and I don't know, like Kenny Rogers, something like that. And I remember the, the guy was like, that I was buying it from, was like, wow, like, like, are these gifts? Like, you know, like, who is this for? I'm like, it's all for me. Like, I'm the person that listens to all of this type type of music because I grew up listening to all of that type of music. You know, my parents were into, you know, 70s rock, but they also were into Motown. They were into Bill Withers. They were into Otis Redding. So I think that it's just important to 
be able to filter in and out, you know, and the same with, same with uh, Hollywood too, you know, you can't just watch the things that you want to watch. You have to watch things that you definitely don't like to watch and don't want to watch. I, for one, I hate horror movies because I do not like being scared, but, uh, but I have to watch them, especially when you look at, you know, films in the last few years that have been making like some of the biggest impact from, from both the social perspective and also an entertainment value and also critically acclaimed because they're winning Academy Awards. You look at what Jordan Peele is doing. I can't not watch horror movies because to not watch them means that I'm missing out on a big part of the conversation. So you have to be open and flexible to all different types of things that fall under the umbrella of, of entertainment and report them out with the same passion that you report out something that you are a fan of. Right. You talk about being well-rounded and also flexible. So were there any journalists that you looked up to as you were coming up? Oh, so many journalists that I looked up to. Um, and not all of them were entertainment reporters. Donna Britt is, is someone that I definitely looked up to. When I was in college, she was a columnist at the Washington Post. And, um, you know, my my friends and I were obsessed with her. We used to race <laughs> to read her columns every time, like a fresh, you know, copy of the paper dropped and she had a piece in there. Also loved Clarence Page at the Chicago Tribune. Thought he was remarkable and didn't flinch with what it was he had to say. And I really loved that about him. And these are both two journalists that I was able to meet in passing when I was a college student. And, you know, even in like the tiniest of glimpses that, that I was able to get from them, like there are things that were told to me that just stayed with me to this day. I remember Clarence said, when I was in college to a group of people that he once read that writing was a horrible thing to say, but it's so true. And I think you guys will understand this as being journalists, but writing essentially requires you to sit over your keyboard, your laptop in this case, and like slit your wrists and like go. And I got that. I was like 18 or 19 when I heard him say that. And I got that immediately because really what he was communicating, what I, what I took away from that is that, you know, this is such an industry of passion and writing to me in particular is like a child almost, you know, it's, it's something that I'm very like, I, I'm very serious about and I love doing so much and I want to do well with it. And, and I got that. I remember, I remember seeing him on stage actually saying that how it affected me back then. And the fact that I haven't forgotten about that, you know, all these years later, and I think about it often says a lot to me. So I mentioned that you work with the Oscars and speaking mm -hmm. of the Oscars, the Oscar nominations just came out. So I'm going to open this up to everyone. Did anyone have any hits or misses? Did they see any snubs? Like, what do you think about the nominations? Parker, let's start with you. For me, the biggest snub is no question One Night in Miami getting snubbed for both Picture of the Year and Regina King for getting snubbed for director and just not getting nominated. I thought personally that didn't sit well with me. How about you, Miss Carter? Yeah, you know, I was really shocked that, that Regina did not get nominated because, you know, One Night in Miami really kind of set the pace, I think, for what we were going to expect for this award season. And, you know, when it premiered, I mean, her name was the first name that was on the short list for, for like a best director category. And I just kind of felt that that 
was something that we were just going to expect so much so that I didn't like it not happening was never a possibility. So I was really caught off guard uh, by that. I think a lot of people also are caught off guard that Delroy Lindo did not get nominated in the supporting actor category for Defy Blood, Spike Lee's movie on Netflix. Um, I don't know why that didn't necessarily happen. I mean, I could come up with a million different reasons why I think one particular reason maybe that it came out a little too early sometimes when films come out in late summer and even early fall they can get a little bit lost even though this is such an unprecedented year and everything that we that we are seeing up for awards they all were films that streamed or that came direct to homes because we couldn't go to movie theaters I still I still was surprised that that didn't happen that said, I think there are so many highlights that are important to celebrate. So many firsts, you know, the first Asian American man to be nominated in, in the best, uh, you know, actor category. Fantastic. Two female directors, you know, up for best direction. Amazing. And the front runner in that race also is a woman of color, Chloe Zhao. I think that would be phenomenal, you know, if that happened. Only one female director has ever won that award in the history of the Academy Awards, which is ridiculous when, when you think about it, but realistic when you factor in the number of opportunities that female directors are given in this town. So there's some progression, you know, that's there. There are three Black men who are nominated for supporting actor. That's never happened, you know, and that, that feels amazing. And I'm really happy to see, to see Chadwick's nomination too. That, that felt really special, but it also felt very right, because I think that he turned in a, a fantastic performance. I'm hoping uh, Judas and the Black Messiah takes home a bunch tonight, especially, especially uh, Daniel Kaluuya. He's one of my favorite people to watch. And then, of course, there's Andrew Day and United States versus Billie Holiday. Hopefully she takes home Best Actress in a Leading Role. But you know what? After looking at these nominations, you know what the Oscars has kind of shown me? that I definitely yeah. don't watch as many movies as I probably should. <laughs> but looking at the list, like three-fourths of the time, I was like, who are these people? Who are these, <laughs> these movies come out? So I'm probably not the best person to ask for a, a very fair you know, answer, but those are definitely yeah. my favorites. Well, you know what? It's funny that you say that, Jayla, because the thing that I've been saying, um, especially since, since the nominations came out, is that this year is in theory, probably the first year in the history of the Academy Awards, and most certainly in a really long time, that people have a greater familiarity with the films mm -hmm. before the nominations. Like normally when the nominations come out and they start naming off the films that are up for, for best Oscar, most people at home are like, oh, what are these movies? When do they come out? how can I see it? Why is it not at my Cineplex? And so this year, because all of us had nothing to do but stay at home and watch Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, Disney Plus, you know, and direct to TV, all people were doing was just watching and watching and watching. And they're watching movies that they normally wouldn't watch. And so I was thinking that this year felt, because the films were far more accessible than they've ever been before, that it felt like more people could be a part of the conversation. But I mean, I'm, I could be wrong about that. And I also want to say that you're absolutely right about Judas and the Black Messiah. I mean, hands down, that was my favorite film. This cycle, it is top to bottom. An excellent film, acting, direction, cinematography, 
writing. It's so well done. And I really, really want to see it do very well this year. And I'm excited for Shaka King, the director. I'm excited for Ryan Coogler and Charles King, the other two producers along with Shaka. Very excited for Daniel Kaluuya. I think that he easily wins that category. It's kind of a bummer that that Lakeith is effectively competing with him, you know, in, in that category. And also Leslie Odom Jr. too. I mean, he was fantastic, obviously, as Sam Cooke in One Night in Miami. But Judas and the Black Messiah is my favorite. I love that movie. So we talked a little bit about, you know, the first that come with the Oscars this year. So it's been a couple years since the Oscars So White hashtag do you all think diversity has increased at the Oscars? And did you think that moment made a difference? I especially want to ask you, Ms. Carter, because being in the entertainment field, you were kind of in the midst of this. I do. I think that once it was called to everyone's attention, the lack of diversity with the voting body for the Academy Awards, it forced you know the Academy's hand as it should have. And they opened it up and, and took a look. Well, they took a look first at their voting body and then opened it up and far more diverse cross-section of people are voters in the Oscars. And I think we started seeing a little bit of that slowly happening. And finally it, it kind of cultivated in, in this year with seeing a lot of firsts and seeing and seeing a lot more representation. I mean, you're seeing the, the hearing impaired community being represented. You're seeing black stories being represented. You're seeing female directors, you know, having an opportunity to be considered to be amongst the best filmmakers this cycle, Asian Americans, I mean, so on, so forth, you know, and it just, it feels really good. And I think that because of the visibility of, of April Rain's hashtag, that's how we land here. You know, that's how we get to a place where you see to Black women who are documentary directors being nominated for Oscars. I mean, these are all good things and there's so much more work to be done. I don't think that we should get so excited that we then fall back, but I think that we also can at the same time cheer on the successes that, that we're seeing, you know, with this current crop of nominees. I agree. I want to add on, I mean, Dela, you asked the question, do we think if diversity has increased in the Oscars and really it's increased everywhere. I mean, the world, because looking back on 2020 and also 2021, looking at everything that we've been experiencing, you know, racism, police brutality. And so now everyone's starting to realize that this is what we're trying to fix. You know, we're trying to close that gap between people. So as Kelly mentioned, when we talk about more Black people being nominated for awards, you know, this is the coming to reality and Black people are being able to tell Black stories. And I think that's what's changing the most is that we're seeing more Black stories that haven't been told before. Amen. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of 2020 and all of the Black love we've seen, we've definitely seen it when it comes to HBCUs as well. From the NBA All-Star Game to all the record-setting donations that have been put into HBCUs to LeBron, I'm sure to Marissa's pleasure, Rock and Fam U gear every chance that he gets. How do we keep this HBCU love going and make sure it's not just a thing that's in during the pandemic and during COVID and that we keep the same consistency going forward? Listen, well, first, go Rattlers, Parker. As you mentioned, LeBron is rocking FAMU gear. So big shout out to LeBron James. But no, I think the the question, the answer to your question is, how do we keep this love for HBCUs? It's just to not keep it as a trend. And I say this all the time because 
America follows a trend. And when we follow a trend, everyone is set on that same idea. Oh, we're going to support HBCUs then. And then once it kind of dies off, it's just like, what do we do now? So, and we see representation from Kamala Harris in the office. And I think while she's in the office, she's going to continue to pride her HBCU. So just going back to that, I think the love for HBCUs will continue, but we just have to make sure that the passion and the love of them keep along that strong weight. Right. And I think a big part of that has to do with the focus that we put on the significant Black figures like LeBron James. I mean, and Chris Paul, who's also done an incredible job and is working with the undefeated to help produce uh, Why Not Us, which tells the story of NC Central. We need to make sure that these athletes and these people in high positions keep promoting and keep championing HBCUs. LeBron even had a tweet a week ago or so talking about how, man, looking back at it, I kind of wish I went to an HBCU and, you know, could could have done something really special with that. And I think just from a celebrity standpoint, LeBron even mentioning HBCUs and even trying to say, hey, this would have been a great cultural moment shows the importance. We've seen Deion Sanders at Jackson State and all the attention that he's been getting, not always for what we want him to be getting attention for, but He's always championing Jackson State and trying to uplift the program. And I think just having those figures in these spaces, that's really important and can pay huge dividends going forward in building and maintaining HBCUs. I think it's a collective effort on everyone's part at this point. I'm hoping that big names and, you know, companies and programs keep their intentions on HBCUs. Absolutely. You know, the more exposure, the better. But when it comes to, you know, opportunities given to students, I think a small part of it is students not really knowing that the opportunities are there. So along with, you know, shedding a light on HBCUs as a whole, I think programs really need to go in and work with these institutions as, you know, instead of like Marissa said, following the trend and not just, you know, the well-known institutions, the Howards, the Hamptons, you know, recognizable schools like that. I think we need to be able to reach the ones that aren't as widely known. I think that would be helpful. And then on the other side of that, institutions also need to do a better job of alerting their students like, hey, you know, this is what's available to us. This is what's available to you. I think if both sides work together and improve in that, then there's no reason for HBCU attention to go away. Last thing on this is I want to give a shout out to the number one HBCU that we keep on forgetting to talk about on the show because they don't have athletics, Spelman College who last week announced that they raised $240 million as part of their $250 million comprehensive campaign to support scholarships, endowed professorships, and innovative programs. Spelman's, you know, Morehouse is not really our sister school because that's Bennett College, but, you know, we're right next door to them. And I always have love for Spelman and all the work that they do. And like I said before, they are the number one HBCU because, of course, the number one school is going to be a school full of Black women. Shout out to Spellman. Shout out to all the history they're making. And keep it pushing. So now to pivot into March Madness, we're just getting ready to start the tournament. You could feel the excitement in the air. However, what you can feel is the Black coaches that are being represented on the sidelines for a lot of these schools. And a lot of them have a chance to make a real deep run at the championship this year. One coach I want to point out in particular is Oklahoma State's coach, Mike Boynton, who, you know, he doesn't get a lot of the credit because Oklahoma State has uh, Cade Cunningham, who's likely to be the first number one overall pick in the draft. But Mike Boynton has done an incredible job, especially when you consider the way Oklahoma State was playing in the beginning of the year. 
they ran one offense that was separate from Kate Cunningham and then ran like an isolation kind of deal when they wanted to get the ball to Cunningham. Boyan has definitely turned that team around. They made a great run in the Big 12 tournament, got all the way to the championship game where they lost to another black coach, Shaka Smart from University of Texas. And he's changed the offense to where it's still Cade Cunningham's team now, and he's built the ship around him because, honestly, they don't have the talent to do anything else, really. But they're still getting other people involved. They're still running a lot of great cuts and a lot of great motions. And I just want to give a shout-out to Mike Boyan and want to ask, who are the Black coaches that you guys have seen that have impressed you this season? So a big coach that I've really been paying attention to that's in the tournament this year is definitely Juwan Howard. You know, he's the head coach at Michigan and he's turned Michigan around and doesn't really get nearly as much credit as I think he deserves. You know, Michigan plays so hard. They're so disciplined and they play so selflessly. And, you know, he's really turned the culture around and he's the reason that they're a top seed. So definitely shout out to Coach Howard and Michigan. Yeah, and just to add on to that, uh, Florida State coach Leonard Hamilton, um, he actually, his Seminoles right now are the number four seed, and he has been one of the most vocal in the fight for increased representation among Black coaches. So just watching him, not only off the court, but on the court with his team, I mean, their defense is great this season. So I'm definitely excited to see them compete in March Madness this year. Yeah, and I want to mention, uh, especially for Juwan Howard, he's doing this without a single lottery pick on his team, really that team is devoid of talent and they were not supposed to be good yet. And Juwan Howard definitely turned that program around really quickly. And Leonard Hamilton's been having that defense right at FSU for a great time. One last coach I want to give a shout out to is another former NBA player. And that's Patrick Ewing, who of course had an incident where he was in Madison Square Garden, the arena that Patrick Ewing built and was told that he needed a pass to get somewhere. And the security didn't know who Patrick Ewing was, which I think is ridiculous. But he also got Georgetown to the tournament by winning the Big East tournament. And that's super impressive because that team was absolutely terrible this season. Um, But he turned it around quickly. And I know it meant a lot to him winning the Big East tournament the first year that he was coaching Georgetown and the first year that he was coaching in general without John Thompson, who of course was his coach and a legendary figure in college basketball. And I'm sure it felt just a little bit better that he got to beat Coach McDermott over in Creighton, especially after his plantation comments that he made earlier in the week. And now time for a parting shot. Over the last year, we have seen Asian Americans getting attacked largely because of the words of a former elected official who referred to this pandemic as the China virus. This past week, it came to a head when eight women were killed by a 21-year-old white man who was shooting at several Asian massage parlors in Atlanta. He claims it was not racism, and his reasoning for committing these shootings was to eliminate, and I quote from the police officers, temptation for his sexual addiction. I'm not willing to dismiss that's the notion, but I'm dismissing the fact that that isn't racist. The way that Asian women in particular have been fetishized and sexualized in media is disgusting and is what led to this. It's dehumanizing them and it, and it makes them fall under the category of sexual object instead of human beings. And these were just women who were trying to do their jobs. The killings of these women are on this man and his sick mind. But we need to watch the way that we speak about women of all races. This is one of the after effects of the culture that we as men have set forward. So while this killing is on him, the causes of it, that's on us. 
Thanks for listening to the Roden Fellows Podcast. This show is produced by Jayla Jones. Special thanks to Tarika Foster-Brasby and the ESPN Digital Audio Content team. A million thanks to our guest, Ms. Kelly Carter, as well for joining us today. I'm Parker Owens, and I've been your host. Get all of our HBCU podcasts by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next time for another podcast episode, and don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports, culture, and entertainment. Have a great week.